Section 2. The Early Church Period from the 1st Century to St. Augustine, A.D. 100-430. When Christianity, as a healing religion, began to spread throughout the Greco-Roman world, it came into conflict with a pagan healing tradition that had been firmly established for centuries. Its chief rival was Asclepius, Aesculapius to the Romans, the most prominent healing deity in the ancient Greco-Roman pantheon. Like most religious figures, his origin is obscure. By the 5th century BC, his cult had been firmly established throughout the Mediterranean world, as inscriptional evidence indicates. Asclepius was originally a human physician, made the son of Apollo by both Hesiod and Pindar. He became the chief healing deity of the famous shrine at Epidaurus and recognized as demigod at Athens. He was finally venerated as the great healing god Aesculapius at Rome. His reputation did not stop with healing, but broadened and increased until he was recognized as both deliverer and saviour, soter, as well as healer. His cult was so widespread, his fame so universal, and his healing power so famous that Asclepius, quote, was regarded by the early Christians as the chief competitor of Christ because of his remarkable similarity in role and teaching to the great physician, end quote. It is important to keep in mind that in the world of the New Testament, any deity venerated as healer was also venerated as saviour. For the Christians, therefore, Jesus was both saviour, soter, and physician, iatros. Many famous names in the ancient world, the Stoic Epictetus, AD 120, the Emperor Marcus Aurelius, AD 121-180, and the physician Galen, AD 175, spoke in glowing terms of the healing and benevolent power of Asclepius while denigrating Christianity. He was referred to as the, quote, most philanthropic of the gods, end quote. Galen confessed that he was a servant of Aesculapius, since he saved me when I had the deadly condition of an abscess, end quote. The early Christian apologists answered by charging that the cures made by the pagan gods that corresponded to the cures of Christ were instigated by demons. Justin Martyr, circa AD 100-165, wrote that when the demons, quote, learned that it had been foretold that he, Christ, should heal every sickness and raise the dead, they produced Aesculapius, end quote. Tertullian, circa AD 160-120, called Asclepius, quote, a, quote, dangerous beast, unquote. Lactantius, circa AD 240-320, circa 320, said that his birth was a disgrace to Apollo, and Eusebius of Caesarea, circa AD 265 to circa 339, looked upon him as a, quote, destroyer of souls, end quote. Due to the complexity of this subject, we shall, for the most part, leave aside the matter of supernatural healing claimed by both pagan and Christian writers during this period. The question that remains may be stated as follows. What were the ordinary means of caring and curing that won the day for Christianity? He can partially answer this by comparing the Christian worldview with the pagan worldview as each related to the care of the sick. The one word that largely governed the care of the sick in the pagan world was philanthropia, philanthropy. 
Ludwig Edelstein, at least to some extent, defines this word for us in his lecture in honour of Sir William Osler, presented to the Faculty of Medicine, McGill University, on December the 5th, 1955. In this lecture, Edelstein quotes the well-known line from the pseudo-Hippocratic treatise, Precepts, quote, For where there is love of man, philanthropia, there is also love of the art, philotechnia, chapter 6, end quote. He does so in order to show that Osler himself had read too much into this maxim. Osler had said that he saw evidence of the Greek physician's, quote, love of humanity associated with the love of his craft, philanthropia and philotechnia, the joy of working, joined in each one to a true love of his brother. Edelstein reminded his audience that Osler had read back into the word philanthropia, a meaning that it did not originally have, and if scrutinized in its wider context, Edelstein concludes that, quote, it means no more than a certain friendliness of disposition, a kindliness as opposed to any misanthropic attitude, end quote. In the Hippocratic corpus, therefore, philanthropia indicates no more than politeness, kindness and a decent feeling towards others. In reality, not a very powerful concept as a moral imperative. Our term, quote, philanthropy, end quote, is derived from the Greek word philanthropia, which literally means a general, quote, love of mankind, end quote. The word originally meant a generosity of rulers towards subjects, a friendly relationship between states. The word always carried with it an element of condescension that brought praise to the giver on behalf of the recipients. This has little to do with the biblical ethic, as Jesus points out when he said of such benefactors, quote, They have received their reward in full, end quote, Matthew 6 verse 2. From the pagan perspective, this same holds true, as Cicero, 106-43 BC, observes when he wrote, quote, It is quite clear that most people are generous in their gifts, not so much by natural inclination as by reason of the lure of honour. They simply want to be seen as beneficent. End quote. It is quite evident that philanthropy in the Greco-Roman world did not include private charity, nor did it include any personal concern for the sick orphans or widows. The Greco-Roman deities showed little concern for those in need, only for the rich and powerful who could offer them sacrifices. As Amundsen and Ferngren point out, quote, it was on a quid pro quo basis that pity might serve as a motive for giving. The giver hoped that, should he ever be in need, he might expect pity and aid because he had earned it by displaying pity himself, end quote. The idea is succinctly summed up in the one line attributed to Aristotle by his biographer Diogenes Laertius, quote, I give not to man, but to mankind, end quote. This was characteristic of society at large, as W. W. Tiern points out, quote, Broadly speaking, pity for the poor had little place in the normal Greek character, and consequently, for the poor as such, no provision actually existed. There was nothing corresponding to our mass or privately organised charities and hospitals, end quote. Philanthropy, being communal, 
and based upon a quid pro quo principle, no distinction was made between those in need and others. Furthermore, since the poor and the sick could not return favours given them, they were considered unworthy of receiving them. Greco-Roman philanthropy was statist, impersonal and utilitarian. Peter Singer's society would be something like this. It is because of such connotations that the writers of the New Testament and the early church fathers seldom use the word philanthropia to describe love in the Christian sense. They choose the seldom used word agape and give it a new and distinctive Christian meaning. It was rooted in the very nature of God's love towards mankind as shown in the Incarnation. Quote, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son End quote. John 3 verse 16 Moreover, since God was the active agent in sending his Son, agape is an active principle in that the love of God requires a response in man's love towards his brothers and sisters. Matthew 22 verses 36 to 40 quote, All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, end quote, said Jesus. When asked specifically how Christian love is to be shown and to whom, his answer is contained in the parable of the Good Samaritan, along with the admonition, quote, Go and do likewise, end quote. Luke 10, verses 25 to 37. William Barclay describes it as follows, quote, Agape is a spirit which says, quote, No matter what any man does to me, I will never seek to do harm to him. I will never set out for revenge. I will always seek nothing but his highest good, end quote, unquote. This agape was absolutely essential in carrying out the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. One of the commands Christians were to obey was to, quote, heal, therapeo, the sick, end quote, Luke 10, verse 9. Often, often we let the miraculous in the New Testament overshadow the ordinary meaning of this word, which is, quote, to restore the sick to health by serving, caring, and treating, end quote. The emphasis can be on giving treatment with or without any reference to healing. As Christians spread this revolutionary concept of agape throughout the Greco-Roman world, they found a medical ethical tradition in harmony with their own, namely that of Hippocrates. The Hippocratic tradition, however, represented only a small segment of medical opinion. Edelstein points out that, quote, Medical writings from the time of Hippocrates down to that of Galen give evidence of the violation of almost every one of its injunctions. At the end of antiquity, a decided change took place. Medical practice began to conform to that state of affairs which the oath had envisaged. Small wonder, a new religion arose that changed the very foundation of ancient civilization. Christianity found itself in agreement with its principles. As early as in the, quote, teaching of the twelve apostles, end quote, the command was given, quote, Thou shalt not procure abortion, nor commit infanticide, end quote. Very early in her life, the church set up agencies to deal with every sphere of life. They had their own courts, schools, exchequers and hospitals, it was their faith that dominated every area of life. To have any area of life outside the Lordship of Christ 
was considered idolatry. The reason behind the violent Roman persecutions of the 3rd century was not religious, but rather that, as the charge read, the Christian church was imperium in imperio, a sovereignty within a sovereignty, an absolute authority within the jurisdiction of another. It was because they were regarded as politically subversive that they had to be destroyed. Stuart Perron describes the cause of the violent persecution under Emperor Valerian, AD 257, as follows, quote, Once again, it was the Christian society, not the Christian faith, which was prescribed as illicit. The persecution was, as usual, based on political and economic, not on religious or theological grounds, end quote. Both Justin Martyr, circa 100-165, and Tertullian, circa 165-220, taught that all believers should visit the sick. This was an imperative, as Christ himself had pointed out. Quote, I was sick, and you looked after me. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. End quote. Matthew 25, verses 36 and 40. The verb, quote, to look after, end quote, episkeptomai, in its context here means, quote, to care for in order to help or benefit, end quote. In late antiquity, this was the word used to describe a physician's visit to a patient. The church's exchequer had funds designated especially for the sick who were too poor to pay for treatment. The deacons and deaconesses of the church, who were largely responsible for administering this aid, were also responsible for the staffing of the orphanages, hospitals, leprosarii, and other charitable institutions established by the church. Henry Sigarist describes it as follows, quote, It remained for Christianity to introduce the most revolutionary and decisive change in the attitude of society towards the sick. Christianity came into the world as a religion of healing, as the joyful gospel of the Redeemer and of redemption. It addressed itself to the disinherited, to the sick, and afflicted, and promised them healing, a restoration, both spiritual and physical. It became the duty of the Christian to attend to the sick and poor of the community. The social position of the sick man became fundamentally different from what it had been before. He assumed a preferential position, which has been his ever since. About halfway through the 3rd century, a devastating plague ravaged the empire, and the Christians responded with a heroism previously unknown in the ancient world. This was particularly noticeable in that the Christians had just passed through a period of intense, cruel and vicious persecution. A letter written by Dionysius, Bishop of Alexandria, describing the Christians' response to this plague has been preserved for us. Dionysius observed the following, quote, The most, at all events, of our brethren in their exceeding love and affection for the brotherhood were unsparing of themselves and cleave to one another, visiting the sick without a thought as to the danger, assiduously ministering to them, tending them in Christ, and so most gladly departed this life along with them, being infected with the disease from others, drawing upon themselves the sickness from their neighbours, and willingly taking over their pains. The pagans, on the other hand, were terrified by the plague, They even abandoned their own relatives by dragging them out into the streets before they were dead, hoping they would be picked up and cared for by the Christians. 
due to the devastating effects of the plague, there appeared an unofficial body of Christians known as the Paraboloni, quote, the reckless ones, unquote, who, in spite of the risk involved, devoted themselves especially to the care of all plague victims. During the Great Plague of the next century, their care, not only for their own, but for their pagan persecutors as well, was noticed even by the Emperor Julian, 361 to 363, who remarked that, quote, The impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well, end quote. This was quite remarkable in that there was, in general, no ethical motivation for this kind of charity in the ancient world up until this time. It was the Christian concern for those who bore God's image, Imago Dei, even though defaced by sin, and motivated by love, agape, as displayed in Christ, that gave rise to the establishment of the first hospitals, Xenodocii, in the 4th century. Probably the best known of these was the Basileus, founded about 372 by Basil the Great, Bishop of Caesarea in Cappadocia. Gregory of Nazianzus, 330-389, has left us a first-hand account of a personal visit. He says, quote, Go forth a little from the city, and behold the city, the treasure house of godliness, in which disease is investigated and sympathy proved. We have no longer to look upon the fearful and pitiable sight of men like corpses before death, with the greater part of their limbs dead from leprosy, driven from cities, from dwellings, from public places, from watercourses. Basil, it was, more than anyone, who persuaded those who are men not to scorn men, nor to dishonour Christ, the head of all, by their inhumanity towards human beings. End quote. 